All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hi there, Jen here to tell you about this week's Sunday Chops. This week I am speaking to Diana DeFries, a campaigner for the Movement for an Adoption Apology. Diana was forced to give her baby up for adoption when she gave birth at the age of 16. And she is one of thousands of women to have suffered the same plight in the UK between the 1940s and 1970s. You might have heard in the news recently that the Joint Committee on Human Rights has announced that it will hold an inquiry into the right to family life and adoption of the children of unmarried women between 1949 and 1976. In this week's Chops, Diana and I talk about her own personal experience as well as the inquiry and why other women who suffered the same fate as her and the children of those women need an apology. I'm not going to lie to you, it is quite a hard listen at times and Diana's experience unfortunately so like so many others is quite a harrowing one. If you have been affected by this particular issue yourself and you want to contribute to the inquiry I do give details of how to do that at the end of this podcast but the web link to the Movement for an Adoption Apology website is in the podcast description so you can click through to that for more information about what these guys do and why and how to submit evidence to that inquiry. 
I feel it would be a little bit glib to say, I hope you enjoy this podcast. And, and enjoy is definitely the wrong word in this situation. But I hope that you find it interesting. I hope it makes you fucking mad about the injustice that these women faced. And I hope you tell everyone you know about it as well, because it's been kept under the rug for way too long. I'm joined by Diana DeFries, campaigner for the Movement for an Adoption Apology. Hi, Diana. Hi. Diana, you're joining me today to talk about forced adoptions. You are one mm. of literally hundreds of thousands of women who were forced to give up their child for adoption between the 50s and 70s, I think is primarily when that yeah. happened, post-war Britain. Would you mind starting by telling me a little bit about your story? Okay. I was 15 when I met somebody who was nearly twice my age, and he was very friendly, and we got involved very, very quickly. A lot of what he told me about himself later proved to be untrue. By the time I was into my 16th year, I realised I was pregnant. And when I plucked up the courage to tell him, he effectively said, well, that's it then, and walked away. Um, and left me to deal with it. And by that time, I was about five months into the pregnancy, so it was a little late for any intervention as such. Not not that I would necessarily have chosen that anyway, but, it, you know, I, I was so frightened that I didn't tell anyone. And I hid it, and I sat my O-levels. This was 1974. And I started having a lot of back pain, so my parents, who weren't terribly interested in me, um, were aware that I was dragging myself around and took me to see a doctor, a back specialist. He examined me and his question, his only question that I can recall was, how long have you been like this? And I said, I don't know. And then he left me in his consultation room, uh, disappeared and had a long conversation with my parents who took me home in icy silence sat me down and says, uh, we, we understand from whatever his name was that uh, he, in his professional opinion, he thinks you're pregnant. And I thought, okay, this is an opportunity to talk about it. I was terrified. And I said, uh, well, I'm, I must be then. And then all hell broke loose. There was a lot of shouting. I was called a lot of very unpleasant names by my mother. And... Various things were bandied around. The first question she asked me is, what will the neighbours think? <laughs> Not, are you okay? Do you need anything? There was no concern for my welfare at all. And it, it, she took me to see our GP. And the GP was very similar in that he looked at me as we walked in. He said, I hear you've been a naughty girl. Mm. And then the rest of the conversation was with my mother. He didn't examine me, he didn't do any tests, he didn't do anything. He just had a conversation with her from which I was effectively excluded. Uh, this was sort of maybe late August because my daughter was born in October, so this must have been late August. I was about seven and a half, eight months in, and I'd really been hoping in that fantasy, childish way that I could just 
magically have the baby and present it as a fait accompli and then everybody would just have to deal with it. But that, that really wasn't what happened. Everything was arranged without any real consultation with me. And I was taken by train to a mother and baby home in Southampton. On the 13th of September, it's kind of burned into memory. You remember certain things very clearly. And that was one of those dates. And my mother didn't speak to me all the way there. And when we arrived at this place, it was this big double-fronted building. It was bigger than a house. It was it had a sort of curved drive where we stopped. And big double wooden doors. And I felt like I was going into a prison, which effectively I was. And she left me there once she'd seen that I was in a room. Um, my suitcase was there. She just left me there. And it was run by nuns. And the irony is it was called Nazareth House. So we were expected to do chores. And because I was one of the younger ones, I also had schoolwork to do. My school was aware that I was in this situation. And the headmistress had asked me in front of my mother, was this what I wanted? And in other words, you know, having a child adopted. And I looked at my mother and got this sort of laser beam of hatred back and thought, oh, no, can't say anything. So nobody ever talked to me on my own in a kind of adult-to-adult way because I was in an adult situation. So I was in there for a few weeks and, you know, we were all allocated different chores and we had to do a little bit of laundry, it was like the Magdalene laundries, but there was stuff that we had to wash in these big, you know, they're called Belfast sinks, the very deep ones. And everything seemed to be designed to make us feel bad. So even when I went into labour in the middle of the night, I went and knocked on the door of the, the nun who was in charge of these things, and she said, oh, you're making it up, go away. It was only when I went back and banged on the door again, she got incredibly angry with me. And then I don't think any of them had a medical qualification, but they insisted on examining any girl who was in labour. So I don't know why or what they hoped to achieve, but they quite clearly didn't believe me until I had another contraction. And then they sent me to the hospital in an ambulance on my own. And I'd had no antenatal care. I had very little idea of what to expect other than just sort of pictures in books. And I had nobody with me that I knew. So it rapidly became really terrifying. I kept saying things to people and they just didn't speak to me because they knew where I'd been sent from. So it was like, uh, it was like, I, you know, why, why would they speak to me? I'm not completely clear because there are big holes in my memory from that time. And it really is just a blank space, then this happened and a blank space, then that happened. And I know now that's the result of trauma. But I went from wherever it was that I started, which may have been, um, you know, where they admitted me. I, I don't really remember getting to that place. Somebody asked me how often the contractions were and I didn't know. And then they just left me alone. And then I was taken somewhere else, but I don't remember going from that place, which was like a ward that had curtains around the bed, to this big room. And I was lying on what felt like a high table, but I couldn't tell you what it was. It wasn't a bed, I know that. And throughout the process of giving birth, I had 
people around me that I would try and talk to and they wouldn't speak to me other than to tell me to push or not to push. And there was this feeling of being completely powerless in the whole experience and no one hearing me. And I remember a nurse, she was on my right because I still feel her hand on my shoulder while I talk about it. I wanted to sit up because I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get things to work. She kept pushing me flat on my back and then eventually she leaned on my shoulder so I couldn't sit up. They had given me some pain relief. They'd given me an injection of something and some gas and air, but it wasn't enough. I kept asking people, you know, what, what do I do? What's, what's happening? And, and they were, it was like they were all around me, but I wasn't there. It was a really strange experience. The term obstetric abuse has come up a few times in different uh, contexts in, in regard to these stories, and it, it applies in mine, in that I didn't know what an episiotomy was and until somebody decided that was what I needed and they didn't explain. So I will never forget that experience because it was utterly horrifying. Just for the listeners who maybe don't know, for whatever reason, an episiotomy is where the perineum is cut during labour to allow the baby to be, well, to be born more easily. Mm. Yeah, but it's, it's usually only necessary in extremis. And yes. I think that in yeah. my situation it wasn't necessary. They just decided it was expedient. My daughter was born and I, I don't remember anything about the umbilical cord being cut. I do remember the placenta emerging a little later. But in the midst of all of this, there was a nurse who picked her up and said, oh, this baby's flagged for adoption, I'll take her away. And I can remember begging her to not do that, to come back, to bring her to me. And I remember lying there holding my arms out. She came back into the room and she walked straight past my feet and passed me to somewhere on the left. I couldn't really see where she was, and she put the child down. After I'd had some stitches, and I was lying there feeling absolutely exhausted and thinking I could do with a drink of water, everybody vanished. And I was left lying on this, whatever it was, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it was, whether it was an operating table or what it was, but I was left lying on this thing. I had a sheet over me. I'd had nothing to eat or drink since I came into the hospital. I was completely exhausted and I couldn't get to my baby and I was terrified to move because I was so high up. And they left me there for four hours. With your baby in the same room? Baby in the same room, across the room. So they, as well as leaving you, they left a newborn baby for four hours? Yes. And she was crying and all I could do was crawl out. And after, after a couple of hours, my voice started to go. And eventually I almost, I, I, I was down to a croak. I couldn't do anything. And I was drifting in and out. And I knew it was four hours because there was a big clock on the wall. So I was watching time tick by thinking someone will come in in a minute. And I was really cold as well because it was just me and this sheet over me. And then she stopped crying and I thought she was dead. She was, she was born just after four in the morning and it was after eight when somebody stuck their head around the door and said, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know there was anyone in here. And I don't actually remember what happened after that, whether I, whether I passed out or what happened. I don't know. But then I ended up in a, in a side room. And at no point did anybody actually hand me my child. My mother arrived later in the day. She came in and she looked at me and she said, Oh, you're all right then. And then she bent low into the crib 
looked at her and said, oh, she's beautiful. She's going to make someone really happy. And I wanted to say, why not me? The worst part, and this is a story I didn't know about, I didn't know that this was a common experience, but the worst part is when they put you in a ward, when they put any of us in a ward. And I found myself surrounded by happy, smiling faces, people with cards and balloons and happy family members coming in at visiting time. And mine was just a little desert in this oasis of joy. And I remember I just wanted the floor to open up and swallow me. I felt so bad. And it was, they gave me an injection. They told me it was a painkiller because when the milk came, it was hurting. And I was thinking, oh, maybe I should just feed her. And they said, oh, we'll give you something to help with the pain. But what they gave me was a drug to dry up the milk. So it was compounded over and over again. Uh, different things. I felt cornered and I felt trapped by circumstances. And I was never given a choice. Did anyone at any part in this process, it sounds maybe perhaps someone at school a little bit, did anyone at any part of this process show you any kindness? No. That's not entirely true. There was one person that showed me some kindness and she was the lady in the bed opposite in the ward. In the early hours of the morning when she was breastfeeding and I was crying, she talked to me and she was really, really kind. But she was the only one. Obviously, you were then effectively coerced into giving your daughter away, giving her up for adoption. It's interesting how it works because I was told that I'd been allocated a social worker. It wasn't until years later I discovered she was an employee of the adoption agency. And her words were along the lines of, if you really love your baby, you'll give her to a proper family with a proper, as she put it, mummy and daddy, so that they, the baby won't grow up with any stigma. You'll do the best thing for baby. You'll do the right thing. And there's all these terms that have been echoed in different people's stories. And she had me agreeing to things before I'd even given birth. And I signed documents with her as the witness. No one else was with me. But you were a child. These are people, mm. the, these are institutions, authorities, people that you're told you're brought up to put your trust in, to yep. believe will protect you. So, you know, you're, you're literally a child. What are you supposed to do? You, like, you can't possibly stand up to that. No, it's... I mean, if it happened to me as I am now, I'd be punching faces. But at the time... I was terrified and I really believed all the stories I was being told about not being a suitable mother because that's that's one of the psychological tricks is they tell you you're not you're not really suited to be a mother you're too young you can't possibly do the right things so on the one hand you're disparaged and on the other hand you're told if you really love your child you'll you'll hand it to someone else and it's disempowering everything about the whole procedure is disempowering I had a baby last year so I've quite recently come out of going through pregnancy and giving birth and and having a newborn child and I'm 39 now but I was 37 when she was born and I didn't know what to do and that would have been no different you know if I was 15 25 whatever I don't have a clue what Mm. to do you you don't you learn you know Mm. I like to think I have a little bit more wherewithal than of myself at 15 now, I hope I've picked up a few things along the way, but but I have not picked up any relevant experience in caring for a child because it's a brand new situation. So but how could you? Exactly. That's the thing. 
Exactly. How could you? And it, it's really difficult when you're told that at such a young age to think that you're ever suitable to be a parent. You believe it, right? And why And why wouldn't you believe it? Because people in a position mm. of trust and authority are telling you. So why wouldn't you believe it? Because everything is geared mm. towards us putting our blind faith in these people. It's It's absolutely maddening. When I first approached you about this interview, I said that I was slightly surprised because although I was aware of the places in Ireland, for example, the Magdalene Laundries, which are very well known of, I did not know that this was such a widespread occurrence in what I'm going to call secular countries, even though that's incorrect because Britain is, England is actually a, not a secular country, but, um, yeah. but you know, non-religious, if you will, countries. So this is something that was happening here on a much wider scale than perhaps yeah. people are aware of. So it's not just yeah. a religious thing. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit more about the stigma of being an unmarried mother at the time it was more what people were telling me that no one would ever speak to me i would never be able to take care of my baby i would never have any money to be able to give the baby the things it deserved no one ever elaborated on that my understanding from people i knew vaguely is that if you did have a child out of wedlock you were sort of damaged goods you were considered to be to use an almost a a really antiquated term you're still a fallen woman when when you think about the height of the adoption process in in the mid-60s you know you've got this whole sort of summer of love and all that stuff going on and you've got high profile people having love children and you've got thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of young women being sent to homes or, or, or locked away. And then the babies were produced in secret and then they were just handed off to respectable people. Not. So there's this real division in society. And when it, when it occurred in my life in 1974, I think that it was still a source of deep shame for older people. So rather than support me, they wanted to just sort of eliminate the problem by taking the child away. And it's highly likely that I would have functioned just fine, given the right support. It may not have been ideal in that I didn't plan to have that happen in my life at that time. But given the right support, anyone can deal with anything. But if you're not given support and if you're told you're a terrible human being and you've let everybody down and and everybody's ashamed of you, it's very difficult to then summon the courage to to go against what's being said and to perhaps counter with, well, actually, what I want is this. I came to view it afterwards as as a lot like an amputation. And people are a lot more sympathetic about someone who's lost a limb than someone who's lost an entire human being. So it is extremely difficult to convey the sense of loss. And the worst part for me is that years later, people would say things like, well, that was years ago, aren't you over it by now? If somebody had lost a child through illness or through an accident, if that child had died, there would be a whole acknowledgement of the loss. There would be a ceremony. There would be words spoken. There would be support. 
we had, well, I had very little, almost nothing in terms of postnatal support. I had no one follow up to see if I was sane or gone, whether I'd gone barking mad. Nobody ever checked to see how I was coping, including when I was dragged to the court to sign papers, feeling as if, you know, my life had effectively ended. There was no support system in place. There were hundreds and thousands of women who gave birth in, in, in this circumstance or similar, having had very little antenatal care. Then they have very little postnatal care and they're expected to just pretend it never happened. Now, you and I know that the human body, the female body, takes a while to recover from yeah. pregnancy. It, there's a lot of changes. Nobody ever checked to see that I was okay. And after an episiotomy as well, which you would imagine mm. would... Well, I, yeah. know, I know that some midwives looked at my stitches, for example. Yeah, mm. something that you actually might have needed Mm. some help with who knows I, I just didn't have any aftercare and just bought into the idea that that i i was i was sworn to secrecy that's the other thing a lot of us were so not only were we subjected to incredible trauma but we couldn't talk about it so you said an adoption agency rather than a social worker was anyone financially gaining from this situation that's the huge question because at the height, there were over 600 mother and baby homes. And there were other private clinics. There were various establishments where young women could go and deal with their problem. Nothing proliferates to that extent unless there is financial gain. Nothing. Because these were big properties. The place I stayed at, we had probably 12, maybe 15 girls. So I think they had capacity when I was there. So I think they still had room to take more people in because there were girls appearing. That money must have come from somewhere because it's a big place. It needs heating, lighting, electricity, whatever, the food. I mean, somebody was paying for all that. And if it's not being done on the grounds of, obviously, there were nuns involved, etc., uh, etc., et but it's not, you know, for religious reasons that this was happening. It's for sort of, like, you know, moral virtue or whatever. Why was it happening if no one was benefiting from it financially? Like like you say, there has to have been a reason, right? Yeah. yeah. And presumably this is one of the things that, and we'll talk about this inquiry in a minute, but presumably this is one of the things that the inquiry will, will try to look at. I hope so. I hope so. I don't actually know the full extent of what they'll be examining. I know some of it. So I want to come back to that inquiry in a minute. But before mm. I do that, I want to ask you, because I know you didn't have more children after you mm. had your daughter, I wanted to ask you what kind of impact this has had on your life, really. You know, were you ever able to move forward with your parents, for example? simplest way to describe it is I stopped referring to them as my mother and father. I'll, I'll refer to them as my mother and father. I won't use the terms mum and dad or anything like that because as far as I'm concerned that doesn't apply. started calling them by their first names and they objected and I just thought well, you can't stop me now. You've done your worst. That's short of killing me. You can't stop me. It wasn't an easy relationship with them anyway and it got far worse. You don't get over it you don't move past it you come to terms with it as best you can i don't know that there's a way to fix this kind of experience so that a person can cope with it i think it's just making adjustments within oneself so that one can look in the mirror without feeling that 
everything is pointless. So what happened to you? You just got thrust back into the life of a 16-year-old girl and through Mm. the motions, you know, education or whatever, go into the world of work, marry someone, etc, etc. You just literally just back to normal. It, It should be normal. I was in the adoption agency with my parents holding my baby. The longest I held her was the two-hour journey from the home in back into town, back into London. And it suddenly, it was like the penny dropped that this was right. And I couldn't let her go. Mm. So when a woman came out and said, come on, it's time, say goodbye, very brisk, I couldn't let go. So my mother took her from my arms and handed her over. And I remember my knees giving way. And I remember my daughter howling, absolutely howling. And I don't remember anything after that until I was at home. And they said, well, you've got to go back to school. And I went back to school the following week. And I was given a story about having some kind of illness because I'd missed some, some time there. And I was expected to just carry on as normal. And it was never mentioned again. And for some years, until my mother, as an aside, said to me, oh, do you, do you ever think about? And uh, I said, yeah, every day. And I, it was almost as if I'd slapped her in the face. It was quite surprising. I think she thought I'd, I'd just sort of brush it off. The whole thing was about going back into normal life and acting as if nothing had happened. I didn't do a very good job of that, I must admit. I spent a few years in a sort of psychological wilderness trying to figure out why I was still here. Got past that, but it took me a long time. Not to bill this as a happy ending, because it's absolutely not a happy ending, but some positive, you have been reunited with your daughter. Yeah, yeah. And we have a very good relationship. It will never be a mother-daughter relationship, but it has improved over time. And since I got involved with the campaign, and I've been... I've taken part in a couple of documentary-type expose-ish programs. I've been able to share information that I couldn't tell her. And my take on that was very much, she was 18 when we were reunited. You don't meet somebody, get to know them a bit and go, by the way, I went through hell when you were, when you were born. I couldn't do that to her. That was just wrong. So I kept it all quiet. Again. And it's only when I I was part of a a documentary program that went out in 2016 and she watched it. And then she listened to some of the radio interviews I did where I talked very candidly about different things that happened, including the bit in the the delivery room, which I'm not sure what it was really, but, you know, where she was left on the side Mm. for hours. And it changed our relationship because she finally understood why I'd been weird. <laughs> I think she finally got it. And it's been, it's actually been worth it just for that. But it's, it's kind of hanging my laundry out in, in, in for the world to see. But at the same time, it wasn't something that I chose. It was something that was done to me. This is the thing, Diana. I, I feel compelled to say at this point that it's not your laundry that you're hanging out it's it's the nation's laundry it's their shame it's not yours Mm. so can you tell me a little bit about 
the campaign that you're now involved in. In the last month, it's been announced that an inquiry has been launched by the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Human Rights and women have been encouraged to come forward and share their stories. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that inquiry will be looking at? What they're looking for at the outset and what what they're examining is the right to family life and how women like myself were deprived of that. Mm. They are looking at the three decades post-war. They're looking at 1949 to 1976. And because it is the Committee on Human Rights, they are very anxious to, to uncover what took place and why. So the right to family life of unmarried mothers and their children, how the experience of being adopted or having a child who was adopted in that time impacted the family life of the unmarried mother, the child and others, and how the social practices at the time contributed to unmarried women not being able to keep their babies, and the reasons that women felt compelled to go through this process of adoption. They want to know what information was provided to expectant mothers to help them make decisions. Well, in my case, none. And even though there were provisions made in 1948 under the Welfare Act to support single mothers as a result of, you know, the war and women being on their own. Even though those provisions were in place, nobody I've ever spoken to was told about any kind of benefit system or welfare system or any support that was available. Whether that was because many of us were very young or whether it was because it was expedient for other reasons, I don't know. So they want to know about the legal consent of the parents in any adoption how that consent was given and what effect it had on children whose parents did not consent and how standards of consent have changed since then, since the 1950s and how the lack of recognition of the impact of adoption practices in those times affected those whose child was adopted or those who were adopted as a child. So they're looking at both sides of it, which is, which is very important because the impact on some of the children mm. has been significant. Yeah, of course. I guess like the end game of this and what you campaign for with the movement for an adoption apology is an apology. You want an apology from the state for the way you were treated, which is absolutely fair enough. And that's already happened in a number of other countries, yeah. Australia, Ireland, for example. Why hasn't it happened here yet? That's a very good question. When the Australian apology took place, there had been several documentaries, there have been an inquiry, there have been various other processes they've gone through in order to gather evidence to support what had happened and to, to demonstrate that it was wrong. And we have been pushing for an inquiry here for a long time. And I think the reason that there hasn't been an apology here is because there has been a very strange kind of pushback we have an arm of, of the uh, campaign that is very active in Scotland. And apparently, we found out in 2015, when other attempts were being made to gain the attention of those in, in power in Scotland, they looked to the British government, to the English government, the, the Prime Minister and so on, and for guidance. And they were told that they were actively resisting an apology and that was what they had to do. So in Scotland in 2015, they made that choice. They made that decision before the debate at that time took place. This is now all unfolding again. And our, our uh, women, our, our wonderful women in Scotland have 
really pushed hard and they've had a much more sympathetic response. So we think that there may, there is a possibility of something happening in Scotland. But we want any apology to be more than words. We want it to be modelled on what happened in Australia where there was support built in to try and help people come to terms with perhaps never ever seeing their children or their parents with medical aftermath, with psychological aftermath. They, they did a lot of research and they put a lot of measures in place. And they helped a lot. There, I think it was over 200,000 women and children, extended families over there. There were a lot more in the UK. So what we expect is more than just a spoken apology. We expect to have some measures put in place to provide support and to stop people having to pay to search to find relatives, for example. So, Diana, the final question I want to ask you is because this apology obviously is is key. Mm. Some people listening might wonder what the point of an apology is at this stage. You know, the, the, the damage can't be undone and, and you have lived through so much heartache already as a result mm. of what happened to you. And, and, and time is the one thing that sadly you can never have back. Yeah. Why is an apology so important to you and, and what would it mean to you personally to, to get that? It would mean many things to many people. I think among them is uh, a need for recognition and validation of the trauma that people went through and acknowledgement that this was a major injustice perpetrated on many, many young women. And it would give us one woman actually said it would clear our name. I don't feel that my name has been besmirched by it, which is why I will talk so openly. But I did feel that. And I think for those who still feel it, those who are still mired in shame and guilt and longing for what they can never have back, for those women, as well as for people like me who've been a bit more open in latter years, it will be an opportunity to hold the head up and to realise that this was done to them this was never something that they chose. This was just an unfortunate confluence of circumstances that put them in the hands of people who were, if I may say so, somewhat unscrupulous in their wielding of the power that they held. And rather than help the people who needed help, they used them to put children in the arms of those who perhaps couldn't have their own. And they did it without without really thinking about the consequences and without supporting the women affected and without really considering the impact on the children. Because a lot of children have grown up feeling like they don't really fit and they may not have been told the truth. I know of one situation where the child in question didn't search, I say child, it's an adult by then, but didn't search because they thought that their parents had died in a car crash when, when you know, before they were... Um, adopted. So it was, when, when stories like that are told, people have a lot to come to terms with. And no matter which side of the equation it is, I think people deserve the truth and they deserve to be acknowledged as being the victims of an injustice. One of the documentaries that Diana has 
participated in uh, has told her story on is uh, If You Love Your Baby, the story of forced adoptions, which you can still watch on the iPlayer. I recommend that if you want to know more about this issue. And you can find out more information on the campaign by visiting movementforanadoptionapology.org. And if you would like to submit any evidence to the inquiry on this or you know someone who you think might want to submit evidence, you can do so by visiting committees.parliament.uk forward slash call dash four dash evidence forward slash five nine four. And I'm sure if you just Google it as well, you'll be able to find it relatively easily if if it was a bit hard to follow that very snappy web address <laughs> there I just is gave. a link directly from the mar website as well perfect that's probably mm. the best place to look then diana i just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with me and with the listeners today what an absolute powerhouse you are to be getting involved in this campaign and and trying to help other women who've been through a similar experience so thank you very much thank for you. that as well Standard Issue for All Women.